Welcome to Path to Glory, a Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. I'm your host, Iman Kusro, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jonathan Davis. Hello. Today, we're also joined by a very special guest. He is the core author behind the Steel City Underworlds blog and a recently crowned Grand Clash champion, the King of the North himself, Michael Carlin. Hey, hello everyone. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Uh, no problem. The, for reference, this episode was recorded on November 2nd, 2019, so a week after the most recent set of Grand Clashes. Um, so for Mike, for our listeners who aren't too familiar with you, do you mind introducing yourself and, and your blog and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Ah, sure. So, uh, yeah, run Steel City Underworlds. Um, we've been running it for over a year now. Um, we started it as a group, um, kind of as a way to um, explain how defensive slash control play worked uh, to the community at large, because a lot of people kind of hated it and thought it automatically won games when uh, Tom, uh, one of our authors, he plays aggressively and he could not necessarily consistently beat us, but had absolutely fine records against us. You know, like 50, 50, or to be honest, he was like 55, 45 to us. He was usually slightly taking us. Uh, so we wanted to kind of dispel a lot of the myths around control play automatically winning games and show you how to beat it. Um, and then it kind of morphed from there into a just, this is us talking about the game now. Um, personally, myself, I've been playing it for over a year and I've been trying to uh, kind of play it as competitively as possible. I'm super happy with this Grand Clash win because uh, it kind of feels like I've vindicated a lot of my kind of all, all the effort that I've put into the game now feels like it's actually paid off, basically. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it, it's a great feeling uh, to not only for yourself, but just to, you know, the community can appreciate that because I know that uh, when I first started my blog and I'm sure Jonathan feels similar, uh, one of the blogs that I loved reading was Steel City Underworlds. In fact, uh, one of your articles on mid-range fiends inspired hey. to write a mid-range Farce Riders article. I don't know if you remember that. Mm, uh, yeah. So, um, well, great. Really happy to have you on here. I'm going to turn it over to Jonathan for the community shout-outs. Sure. Yeah, The uh, today we have a couple community shout-outs. Um, the first one really is just the Warhammer TV live stream that uh, took place uh, with the event. Um, I thought it was phenomenal. Um, Nick Baton and John Reese, the combination of those two um, together was great. Um, John Reese is just so knowledgeable and he's able to just look at the board state and sort of tell you what the situation is and what the you know good moves might be. Um, it was great. And then Nick Baton is uh, just a great commentator great personality and uh the combination of those two i just i thought it was perfect so um big shout out to them um you can see that on the warhammer tv twitch channel uh, you have to subscribe but for something like 16 hours of uh great gameplay i think it's totally worth the five bucks you'd have to do to subscribe so i definitely recommend that um and then a bit of a self shout out um i also did a uh, data breakdown on the Grand Clash, which you can check out in two articles on wellofpower.com. Um, and one of them is the first day stats, and then the second article is the sort of path to the final and then the winner. Um, just follow on all the undefeated top 16 um, 
till the winter. So I would definitely recommend that if you're interested in the data behind uh, some of these larger events. And I think that is it for the community shout outs. Yeah, thanks, dude. Um, again, Well of Power, great information there, great website, great resource. Highly recommend you check it out, maybe submit a deck guide or two. Michael, since you're our guest, um, we're kind of go into our like what we've been up to lately in our personal Underworlds recap. So we all know you recently won a Grand Clash, but aside from that, what's been going on in the realm of the Underworlds? So I, to be honest, I've been I've been completely focused on the Grand Clash. Um, I've uh, so I, something I did last year was I was kind of trying to do the um, challenge to win with all the different um, warbands. Uh, which I believe John and Jay Claire completed at the end of Night Vault, so they've actually managed to win with 16. I don't think they're quite up to date now the new Beast Grave ones have come out, but fair enough, they've only all just come out. Um, but this this year I made a very definitive kind of conscious effort to, right, I'm going to stop kind of messing, not necessarily messing around, but kind of flirting around with all these different things and really focus on trying to win a Grand Clash. On, honestly, genuinely, the last month for me has not has been completely preparing and then just playing in that Grand Clash. There's been very little extra stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that, um, that that's the best way to kind of practice for a Grand Clash, is to focus on one particular warband and kind of figure out the nuances behind it? Um, yes. I do think so. I do think playing with all the different warbands gives you a good breadth of knowledge about the game. And it means that whenever you see something that's not played as much, if you've played it yourself, you're not going to be caught off guard. So say, for instance, you're playing against Eyes of the Nine. Um, you know that if you kill the Blue Horror, there's a good chance that they've got... Not, they're not only going to get martyred if, if you know, it's the first kill in the round, but they might also have Summoner in hand, and they might, they might get two Surge objectives for you doing something that might not actually be that beneficial to you. Um, so there's, there's a lot to be gained from that. However, if you're preparing for a Grand Clash... It's just more important to really, really know the nuances of your warband and what you're playing against. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, although I would also say that it's likely that uh, all your experience with all the warbands probably helped as well. So mm-hmm. it's, it's probably a good uh, good to swap back and forth between those two. Yeah. So. Actually, sorry, uh, something I should add to that as well. I'm in a kind of a unique position where I have an incredible array of people to practice against. So I, I've been practicing against you guys online with the cam games that Wigglefish has been setting up. And we have an incredible community in Sheffield. Like we have about eight people turning up every week to practice games with. Uh, Martin Collins, a former Grand Clash winner amongst them. So for me to like not kind of um, mess around going to other tournaments, I can still get constant games in all the time. I think if, you're, if you've not got really good people to play all the time, it might, you might get more worth going back to those tournaments. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, what I've been doing recently is just kind of messing around with different warbands. Um, I took the uh, skeletons out, the paltrow guard. I'm not actually sure I know how to say that word. Um, <laughs> I've been playing them a little bit. Um, I don't think I had played them in like six months, maybe or longer. And I think I've only maybe got three games with them. Um, so that was a cool sort of learning experience, um, and like it, it went pretty well. So. Um, doing that and then just kind of messing around with different decks. Um, because I don't have a big event to practice, I'm kind of doing the opposite of what you've been doing and just kind of uh, exploring the different options and uh, what, see what different warbands have to offer and just trying to grow that way. So 
that's what I've been doing. Um, that's what have awesome. you been up to, Amon? Yeah, I honestly, I've been a bit more lax in my approach to Underworlds as of late. Um, as you mentioned, there is no local event or anything. Not local, excuse me, like Grand Clash we can go to. Uh, SoCal was going to be something I know that we were both interested in, but uh, fortunately the numbers didn't quite interest us. So um, just been having fun exploring the meta. Uh, I know earlier you mentioned, Michael, uh, in the pre-show that it's constantly shifting. Mm-hmm. So just trying to anticipate what the next changes are, how that's going to affect the warbands I want to play with, and generally just having fun and spitballing ideas. I think in the last couple of weeks, the more I've talked to, this is the most I've talked to other people about the game. And mm. um, that's saying something because I'm always talking about the game to other people. And so just throwing ideas back around and, and knowing that even though some of them do sound a bit crazy, they might work. So yeah. that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things about this game in general is just how many different options there are and then just how fun it is to like communicate with the community and uh, get their ideas and try out different stuff. So seems like the way to do it. Absolutely. Um, does anyone else have anything else they'd like to share before we kind of kind of dig into the meat of the subject here, which is uh, Mike's Grand Clash experience? I think I'm ready. I think I'm good. <laughs> cool. Okay, awesome. Um, so, you know, Mike, going into the Grand Clash, uh, I guess one of the first things that people try to plan for is they try to predict the meta uh, and, you know, kind of adapt to changes that are released around the time before the event. Mm-hmm. So what did you expect the meta to look like? And did the new bar list, or I should say far list now, um, impact your decision making? Um, I'm going to call it the bar list just because I think it sounds better. Um, <laughs> just, just, I know it is the farthest up, but I'm sorry, it's the farthest for me. Um, I completely agree. <laughs> it massively, massively. So it changed my warband. Um, I was originally on Molog. Um, I had this crazy build of him where he had two of the different upgrades that made him into Hunter, and I had Trophy Belt, and I had Term of Offerings. Um, and the vague, the vague plan is to try and score Supremacy's worth of glory per kill. Um, and it was working okay. Um, it, it had some minor issues, but to be honest, the minor issues were basically it's very hard to kill Molog right now. Um, now that Ready Fraction's gone, now that um, Rebound's gone, now that Lethal Strike's gone, uh, a lot of the anti Molog tools all disappeared. Um, and yeah, that I was I was I was planning on uh, kind of going in and just playing the super aggro mode, um, but. Going down to three restricted cards and having upper hand banned, I yeah I pivoted away from that fairly quickly. I still think he's good, right? I still think I, 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 he's still the type of uh, warband that if I see across from me at a table, I kind of uh, get very nervous very quickly. But I didn't want to play him with those changes. He 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 didn't get an, he doesn't get enough consistent glory early in the game now to get an upgrade on, uh, and before he starts trying to roll dice and charge. And that means you're basically just gambling on two two smash attacks hitting. And I don't like that. So, yeah, the bar list massively influenced me. It completely changed what I was on. And what did you think the meta was going to look like post-bar list? Okay, so... Hmm. I think, I think the introduction of the Grimwatch expansion was probably the biggest deal, because it was the same time, wasn't it? Um, I think... 
outside of Moloch being hit heavily by the bar list, I think it just generally... I don't think the bar list really made as much of a difference as yeah, Grimwatch and Beastgrave stuff in general. Um, I think the meta I was going to expect coming into the tournament was going to be either play Grimwatch or beat them. Honestly. I was I was actually surprised at the amount of Thundrix that I saw and that did well. I genuinely wasn't expecting to see many Thundrix. And, and what about you, Jonathan? What did you think about the meta uh, going into uh, these recent set of Grand Clashes? Um, I guess I would say that obviously I expected a lot of Grimwatch. Um, I think that they're clearly very good. Um, I wasn't too surprised by the number of curse breakers. There were 14 curse breakers at the event. Um, I would have expected that because curse breakers are probably always going to be good. Um, I was expecting thorns. I think they're, uh, thorns of the bride queen. I think they're very good. Um, the queen just has so much power and, uh, she can, you know, the ghost can be in so many places at once. Um, to me, I think that, uh, and I may be, I, I may just be a little bit too into the Grimwatch. I think they um, are so good, and then I think you absolutely have to plan for them. That I was expecting that to skew the numbers um, towards them or things that people thought could beat them. Um, and I think that in general I was right, although I was also a little bit surprised by the number of profiteers, which was 16. Because um, it seemed like historically at the UK events there were smaller, um, there were less of the profiteers. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting that you you mentioned that because I know that we were, I guess, chatting, Mike, as we were playing games. Um, to lead up to both the events we were planning on attending. And uh, um, one thing that, that I had realized was, you know, we we didn't really test the matchup too much, but, you know, I, I had a good feeling that the two damage at range was going to do, um, put a lot of threat on the board against the Grimwatch with the Profiteers. And um, I'm actually really happy that I called the Thorns pick um, because uh, you ended up playing them in the final, and we'll get into that a little bit. But... Um, you know, uh, Jonathan's completely correct. The Thorns, especially through their uh, leader, um, are just so versatile and, and can get damage out crazy. And those movement shenanigans are so powerful. And uh, I think right now pushing and movement is key. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, well, with the Grimwatch um, being so meta, objective tokens matter. Uh, but even without the Grimwatch, like now, just, just having Path to Victory now, because Path to Victory is such a good objective. I think even most aggro warbands are in it, at which point objective tokens start to matter for everyone. Um, so, yeah, pushes are really important because that positioning not only has the dual power of being able to deny or give you charges, but it gets on you offer onto those objective tokens. I really like how the game has shifted towards uh, objectives or feature tokens now matter. Mm. They're no, like Tom used to say, they're, they're Faneway portals, but not anymore. Mm. In fact... Actually, I think Fameway Crystal's bad now that they matter. I would agree. It's, uh, it was yeah. really weird coming to that conclusion because it's been so good for so long. But you you equip it to a fight and you're suddenly like, wait a minute, I can't go anywhere because they're all they're all used. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the only decks that I would put it into are if you have an infaction distraction. Mm. Um, and then you'd also have Restless Prize. And so the two of those together may allow you enough um, flexibility to clear out an objective, but even then I'd want to think about it. 
Yeah, it's really weird how some of the core cards that everyone relied on uh, last season are sort of being, th- you know, shifted to the side a little bit, which I find quite fascinating. Fainway is no longer an auto-include in every deck. Yeah, and conversely, some of them are coming up trumps more now. So I, I always knew Transfixing Stare was strong, but like I never massively rated it, and it, it it's been pretty MVP for me um, at that last tournament. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into some of the more clutch moments and card picks that you uh, you talked about. Um, you alluded to some of the matchups that you saw were going to be, or that you thought were going to be at the event. Uh, what matchups were you concerned about when uh, playing Grimwatch? So number one is Thorns, hundred percent Thorns. So we we actually uh, we had this cool conversation. What was it about a week before the tournament? And you were saying. You asked me in a very serious manner, so I was like, I'm going to think about the answer for a little bit. What do you think is the biggest counter to Grimwatch at the moment? And I had a bit of a think about it and I said, Thorns of the Briar Queen. And then you said, yeah, it's going to be Thorns, hasn't it? Um, interestingly, I didn't think they were the counter necessarily in the same way that Phil played them. So my thinking was, uh, Varclav can spend one activation in the first turn, um, camping all the objectives on their half, and then they can spend the rest of the first turn charging fighters in um and denying you your inspire condition while that, whereas if you're the grim watch say you want to be on tokens you have to generally use an activation to get onto the, each one um so you can't fight back in the first turn which makes it very difficult for you to kind of inspire and it puts you on the back foot where they might have killed more key targets early in the game it's interesting um who would have thought that being an aggressive thorns uh player would you know do so well in the event Mm. Um, and then I thought tech like Howling Vortex would be an absolute nightmare if you're trying to stay on tokens. Yeah, they really have some great faction cards. And, I mean, in my opinion, and I, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, when you're playing the Grimwatch, to me, the first priority in that first round is inspiring, almost above everything else. No, 100% agree. Um, I think I, the deck as well is kind of built so that I will usually grab one or two glory without necessarily having to fight. So that I can prioritize inspiring. I don't, you know, my game doesn't dissolve if I don't have three tokens. I can just sit back, get get a couple of glory, and make sure I get all those ridiculous inspired stats. Right on. Yeah, those stats are nuts. Um, so when you were building your deck, um, were you worried about any people bringing an anti Grimwatch or anti objective deck? Did you think that people were going to read that it was powerful? Um. So one thing that concerned me was potentially Guardians, because uh, they could take Leech Power, they could take Abyssoth's Unmaking, and they can actually benefit from that as well. So it's like you're not just trying to deny Grimwatch, you're getting easier, reclaim the Lamentaries, you can get Scorched Earth off that type of thing. Um, I did a practice uh, set of games against Freya, uh, my, one of my co-authors, um, and I kind of demolished her. Um, with Grimwatch, I was like, yeah, I'm not scared about this because Freya's a really good player. It was a good deck, and it wasn't close. Um, yeah, so. I, I think we actually played a couple games with the Altharis as well. Mm. Um, and it was, especially if you won the board setup, it was very, very difficult for me to stop you from inspiring. And then after that, you just kill me. Yeah. And the other issue you have is, so if you're trying to score, uh, score Reclaim the Lamentary, which is one of your big, nice objectives... Um, then even if, if I get bored, are you going to give me a token on my side? Because <laughs> that's not good. Yeah, yeah, I know. Usually you'd want to put one in the middle territory at least. 
Um, and then that just gives you another token to <laughs> use. So. Yeah. And it's also, I think, um, I tried the matchup as well, but I was playing against Thorns. And um, that's one of the reasons why I abandoned them completely was uh, the Thorns just kicked their butt. I mean, the Queen can just teleport in and destroy Ulthari, and I think she really misses Last Chance. Hard agree. Last Chance going was a real, real loss for the Guardians. Yeah, definitely. I think th- I think their warband hangs off Ulthari even more than um, Thorns hangs off the Queen. Yeah, I, I, could, I can definitely see that. I mean, I, when I was trying to build a deck and... Uh, Jonathan, yeah, you know, would love to hear your thoughts on this, but I found that I just threw a lot of cards in there because it worked well with her. But then I also realized that if she goes down early, um, you know, I'm kind of out of luck. Yeah, I mean, I've found that it's a balance between you don't want to put too much emphasis on her, um, but you also kind of have to because she's one of the better fighters. Um, so yeah, it's it's difficult. I think it's possible that you could. Um, have success with them in the current meta, but it's going to be difficult because um, I think they're one of the warbands that like really rewards positioning and like correct play. And if you make a mistake, you just probably die. <laughs> so I don't I don't think it's a very forgiving warband at all. Um, I can agree with that. Yeah. Um, Michael, were there any other uh, thoughts or comments that you had when you were building the deck? Um, so going in, like you know, pre-tournament type of thoughts. I'm trying to think if there's anything else really scared. I will say I actually thought no one would be running tomes. Uh, with the, I thought the the bar list had made them kind of dead, because going down to three cards and one of them being acolyte and one of them being term of offerings, I kind of didn't think anyone would try and make tomes work. So I, I was surprised people were not only running it but running it to good effect. So I was definitely off on that call. Um. Uh, outside of that yeah i think it was the way i built the deck was just constant repetitive practice and then slow tweaks yeah i'll I'll echo the surprise of the tomes um i think personally i don't like that play style like i've i think i've tried it once and it just wasn't really the style that i like to play um so i would not have expected it and like i don't i don't think i would have practiced against it um so and it seemed like there were a significant number of tome players in the top 16. I think it was like three or four. Mm. So that that was pretty interesting to me. I think the other Thorns player, the one who wasn't Phil, was running tomes. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's funny because it's kind of the only ways you can keep up with the Grimwatch's scoring. Yeah. So it is a a response to the fact that the Grimwatch can score like upwards of 20 glory very early or very reliably, excuse me, in the game. And, you know, how do you com- combat that? Maybe getting like a five or six glory payout at the end. Yeah, yeah. no, it makes sense. Yeah, because if basically what you're doing with a tome deck is you're sort of sacrificing your upgrades. Um, so you have a little bit less power during the game, but if it goes off, you get a big payout. And then, and then I think if you can take that on a warband that can reliably uh, leverage Tome of Offerings for kills, like Thundrix probably can, or Thorns probably can. And then if you could also leverage that with um, objectives like Thorns do, I could see it working. Uh, I'd be interested to see how the Eyes of the Nine deck um, operated, because it was a Tome deck, the one that made the top 16. Mm. Um, So that was pretty interesting. But uh, I don't really know how they score 
enough glory, but they do have a lot of movement tricks. So maybe it was similar to the Molog Tome deck where you'd score a little bit and then hide and then you know, I just get away. Money on spell objectives, um, yeah. something like Martyr, something like Summoner, um, and yeah, and then so basically just enough to eke through to a big tome score at the end on your, on your horror. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Because now they've got, I, I wonder if you put the, I think you put the lost pages in, so you've got a spell action you can repeat as well. Yeah, the Mazig's many legs. Yeah, mm. that's that is really good for just spamming spells. So, yeah, we'll have to check that deck out uh, in the future. Yeah, I think I think it definitely has legs. I'm not really sure <laughs> <laughs> if it'll be too competitive, but uh, I mean, you know, there's always an eyes player who does really well at every Grand Clash. I hope that people continue to do that and innovate with them because they are a great warband. Um, at least. I love, I enjoy them, but uh, they do have their faults, right? Mm. I love the ideas in the design. I just think they're just a bit too weak stat-wise. Yeah. I love, I love the way the blue slash brimstone horror works. It's really cool. Definitely. Um, so, Michael, let's kind of get into your games. So, um, day one, you know, we talked about anti-Grimwatch and stuff. You ended up playing three Grimwatch mirror matches. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> And as Jonathan and I learned uh, from our previous experience at Nova uh, earlier this year, mirror matches are something that a lot of players probably don't consider as much as they should. And, um, you know, I suffered because of it. Jonathan was able to get uh, over that. But um, how do you think the Grimwatch mirror went? Uh, and Jonathan, please share your thoughts on this as well. Um, so I had prepped quite a lot for the Grimwatch Mirror. Um, a lot of the biggest kind of variable in it is if you get tokens or not. Um, weirdly, it took me a while for this. So a lot of the matchups, um, and you'll notice in my uh, finals against Phil, I'd rather, if I have an advantage, have boards than have three tokens. But in the Mirror, I want tokens. Um, so if I get tokens... It's kind of like this weird, you know, it's it's so difficult to talk about because it's so contextual. It's like it's not even just tokens or boards. It's also what cards I have in hand. So say, for instance, I've got tokens and I've got pack advance. I can play an extremely aggressive first turn and then know that any objectives I need to get will just come from that one ploy card in hand. Um, if I've got tokens and I don't have pack advance, then I'm probably going to be spending most of my activations moving on to tokens. Hopefully, I can cheat one out with maybe like uh, a center of attention or a sidestep or something and spend two of my activations charging so I can fight back against their aggression. Um, I do think in the mirror, it's the onus is on the player who has the least tokens on their board to be aggressive. Um, because the player with the most tokens in Grimwatch is just by, na by their nature going to score more glory. Um, the danger is because like that, that's how they're naturally going to play. They're likely to stop you inspiring. So having tokens can be a trap and you have to be really careful to play around it. Um, if you go first or something, sometimes it's worth, and this, this doesn't work necessarily always work against good players, but sometimes it's worth just throwing the bats in a charge onto one of their objective tokens. And if they spend like two or three activations killing them, or even if they just use a Gristlewell charge, because then, you know, Gristlewell is not going to do anything. Like, you're fine, because that fighter that they've killed, okay, yeah, they've got a glory, but they still have to move back onto that objective token of activation or use a ploy card. And they've spent a whole activation not throwing a fighter into your territory that stops you inspiring. 
So there's lots of nuances to the matchup. Um, but I, I was I was I was mostly ready for it, except for the round I lost. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my question is, in the mirror, if you did lose the roll off and they mm-hmm. took the three objectives, um, how would you typically set up the boards? Would you just put them straight on? Oh, I, I not only put them as wide as possible, but I would pick the most aggressive possible board. So, like, you know, um, there's that board with the, three, the triangle of lethal hexes. Uh, yeah. The one that McGaw's Fiends players love that has four up front. I would pick that board and right. I would face it right at them. And I'd actually orientate their board so they'd have fewer fighters up front. So they'd have more starting hexes at the back. So they, they'd almost find it impossible to stop me inspiring. And I'd literally spend about three of my four activations charging them. Um, I'd also... This is this is a crazy. This is this is not something I'd normally advise, right? So against most objective players, especially what we consider objective play for the first two seasons of this game, this would have been a bad call. But against how Grimwatch works, because only like about a third, maybe a quarter of their objective deck will actually care about tokens. It's just those cards are big. Um, you can do this. So after they place their first token, look at the optimal position and then block their placement. So mm-hmm. I actually put my, my first token down in a way that not only blocks their next token being safe, so it's going to go on their board, um, but it's going to be quite close to my end of the board. It's going to be one that basically I, two or three of my fighters can not only move on to, but then a whole bunch of others can charge next to, you know. Um, and it will mean they end up with four tokens on their side of the board. But if I'm charging everyone in in the first turn, then generally speaking, they've had to use all their activations moving on to tokens. Um, or they're charging me back and I'm inspiring at the end of their not inspiring. Generally, it works out. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. Um, I've also noticed that if they put three in their territory and you put one of yours in the like close to the line in their territory, and then you put the other one way in the back, it can actually make uh, swift capture a dead card for them a lot. So, like, I think objective placement right now is uh, kind of a big deal. Um, and also, if you know you're going to have to be aggressive and you know you're incentivized to stop them inspiring in the mirror, then you really should set up those objectives to be charge positions right next to their fighters. Um, so I think that's a really interesting uh, thing in that mirror. I feel like you could lose a lot of the time if you set up defensively and they're able to stop you from inspiring and you don't stop them from inspiring. Because I would almost feel like the first scrimmage to inspire probably wins that game. Yep, in a lot of the cases, that's that's how it works. Because inspiring for the Grimwatch is such a big deal. Um, well, it, it's a universal inspire, so obviously there's that. But it just if you just look across the different fighters, the amount they gain from inspiring is nuts. Oh yeah, it's it's ridiculous how how their stats uh, kind of shift in one direction. Generally, you know, the stats are on the weaker side before inspiring, but their faction cards are so powerful that they're able to kind of uh, rely or lean on those, at least in the first round, so that you can kind of make sure that you do inspire. And then once you do, um, your Duke just becomes a machine, right? Absolutely. He's a scritch with Cleave. <laughs> yeah. Scritch is not the greatest anymore. <laughs> oh. And access to better upgrades, because he can take all the Hunter stuff and Impervious Delusion. Yeah, it's true. I do wonder why he's a hunter, but um, I guess he's leading a attack. I don't know. I guess they eat flesh. He's hunting the balance team. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, well, uh, Jonathan, I know you had a question on uh, the Gits, right? Uh, yeah, so the the second game, or I don't know if it was the second game, but the only other warband that you played <laughs> in that first day was with the Gits. Um, what are your thoughts on that matchup? Because I could see that, you know, they're so numerous, um, it may be hard for them. It may be, it may be easier for them to stop your Inspire, and then it may also be uh, easier for them to block your objective holding. So what are your thoughts on that matchup? Um, so this matchup is, like, I would say 20%. Like so, say for instance, like at players of equal skill with equal balanced warbands, right? It should be 50-50 who wins. I think this matchup, 20% swing is made by who wins and gets objective tokens. Um, if you if you get objective tokens, the gits have an absolute nightmare time. Um, I I got to play this matchup against honestly one of the best players in the UK. It's really bad. I can't remember his surname. I know he's called actually I can bring it up on BCP. He's called Paul. And the last uh, big two-day grand clash, he came third. Um, so going up. Oh, I can't because I'm not a subscriber. Um, <laughs> might be. Um, but yeah, going up against him in the first round, I was just like, oh god, because uh, he he actually knocked Freya out last time. Um, but I. I, I feel a bit bad. I, I won advantage for the two, you know, two games we played, and um, having three objective tokens against Gits is just a nightmare for them. Um, I also, I'm going to bring this up because I'm kind of, I'm not apologetic that I did it, but I still feel a little bit bad. So, in our first game, uh, I think it was in the, it was either in the second or the third turn, he started tooling up a squig, so he put like great strength on. And he put squigs have an upgrade for like plus one damage as well, like their own great strength. And the squig was in range of the duke. And the only reason he was doing it was obviously going to be to charge the duke. At the end of last turn, I'd played impervious delusions on the duke. And I'd done it very clearly. I'd, I'd not only said, I'm playing this on the duke, I'd shown him the card and I put it underneath the duke. And he just said, yeah, okay. Um, and then as he's playing these upgrades on the squig, he just asks, oh, how many wounds does the duke have? And I said four, and I was correct. And then he charges, he makes the hit, and he's like, ha, I killed the Duke. And I'm like, no, you do two damage. And I felt a bit bad. Like, it's it's what I should do, right, at a Grand Clash. I think it's fair to be like that, but I still felt a bit cheeky about it. So, Paul, sorry about that. Well, I think if you tell the opponent that you're playing a card mm. and they acknowledge it, um, and they didn't question on what it does. Um, then, oh, he knew what he did. He'd just forgotten it was on, I yeah. think is what had happened. So, yeah. so I think the onus is on Paul then. Uh, I think it's very kind of you to say that. But you're right. You're in a and, – and you guys might disagree, but I think, you know, if you if you tell them what card it is and they know what it is and they acknowledge that you played it and then they space out like 30 seconds later, mm. I don't think you did anything wrong. Yeah. Uh, I, if it was a local event – I'd have reminded him. But I think at a Grand Clash, it's fair to be, you know. But if you ask me what upgrades I've got, I'm going to tell you. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, like, there was a moment when I played Tony in, in our Grand Clash final, and uh, he said, how many wounds does this fighter have? I say three. Uh, but I did put Potion of Constitution on him uh, earlier, and he, he was aware. And then he did a three-damage attack, and I was like, well, I'll only take two damage. Yeah. And he was like, oh, oh, okay. And and he and then after the game he said, uh, in my meta we say, 
he has three wounds plus potion. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I in my meta, we don't. So I, I guess it just clarifying before the game. But even then, if you're in a Grand Clash, I don't know if you uh, reveal that much information. Jonathan, what do you think? Um, I mean, I would say that you certainly don't have to uh, reveal any information other than just to answer any questions that they ask. Um, I mean, if he asks how many wounds you have and you answer that accurately, I don't think you're at fault. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's the way to go. Um, I would probably, I don't know. I tend to probably try to play by intent as much as possible. So I would, I would probably give them more information, but you know, then I'd probably lose more because of it too. So <laughs> I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I mean, um, for me, honestly, I don't think that you're doing anything wrong. Yeah. Um, and then again, I mean, you know, like how much of your game plan can you really give away to the other player? And like, I don't know. Yeah, it's. It, I think the easiest way is just to go back to the rules, which are some information is public. Um, and if somebody asks you a question, I don't think you owe them anything more than to answer it exactly. Mm. So if you're, you know, if you're lying to them, then that's obviously a different issue. But um, yeah, I mean, if they ask you what upgrades you have, you you need to tell them. So yeah, I don't think that's a problem. I agree that in a local event, you would probably it would probably be better to uh, sort of explain it. But you know, this is it's supposed to be the highest level of uh, the game. And, you know, you also know that this other player um, is a good player and uh, knows how the game works. So I don't feel like it's uh, I don't feel like you're doing anything underhanded there. Um, Yeah. yeah, And also, I will say, like, even at a grand clash level, there are things that I'm fine with. So, for instance, in my final against Phil, he charged to make an attack and he's like, oh, do you mind if I played Potion of Rage on? And that doesn't bother me. I'm fine with that. That's completely like there's nothing I can do to him playing Potion of Rage. Right. Um, the only thing I might say is, if you play Potion of Rage, if there's something I want to do after you've played Potion of Rage, I might go, hold on, let's just go back to the power step. Um, but otherwise, right. I'm completely fine with someone if they've just forgotten to do a thing to have done it. That doesn't bother me. Yeah, that doesn't bother me either. I mean, even when we play our cam games, I, I do that all the time. Like, I'll be like, I'm going to charge here. And they'll be like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. So, I mean, it's, it's, I think as long as your opponent and you are on the same page and Generally, if no dice have been rolled, I think it's it's fair, right? Yeah, that's the key. If dice have been rolled, obviously, you can't really do it back. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, it's really in your interest, like, as a competitive player, to sort of expect that from the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, whether, if you know, if they're going to be, like, if they're going to be nice and tell you that they have Potion of Constitution or they have Impervious Delusion when you ask them a different question, mm-hmm. um, that's fine, but you shouldn't expect that. Um, and like, you know, honestly, if you find that in your games, like you're making all these change, you know, these charges, and then you're having to remind yourself to put an upgrade on, um, I mean, I would be aware that technically the other player doesn't have to allow you to do that. Mm. And so it shouldn't be something that you expect. Um, Mm. and maybe to the point when, when you're practicing, you should not allow yourself any take backs. No, I agree. I think there's a point at which if you're practicing for like a grand class, you want to just go, right, it's the week before. Don't let me make any mistakes. Don't let me do anything over. Just play like super as if everything goes against me, you know? Because if this was a video game, once you hit pass, you're done. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I mean, 
I don't think it's unfair to uh, expect people to play by the rules. So. Mm. Yeah, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be angry at someone if they wouldn't let me do that potion of rage thing, right? I right. would do it to other people because I. I personally feel like that's how I'd like people to play against me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get angry if they don't play like that, you know? I agree. I just mean I think it's worthwhile to hold yourself to a higher standard, mm. um, especially in practice, because it's those sort of painful mistakes that you'll make that will, uh, you know, just perfect your play moving forward. So that's what I think about that. Um, I agree just, with that. I mean, oh, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to go back to the general Git thing. So the biggest deal, I had three tokens, right? He's He's got a lot of stuff off objectives. Very, very, it, the matchup was massive in my favor. Then he, you know, the Pervis Delusion thing was one game where he could, he spent all his resources to kill a Duke and he didn't. And then the second game was I transfixing scared Drisket in the first activation of the game and just won. Um, that, that was, I, I don't have any fancy thoughts on the matchup because everything went my way, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. That happens sometimes, and it was only one game or one match, so I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the dice just go your way in the in the matchups. So uh, I I'm really interested to see how the gets do moving forward. I think they have a lot of potential. I need glory a little bit, but uh, looking forward to seeing some of the cards in the future because if they do uh, bump up or elevate objective play a little bit, then I think you'll See, the gate's doing pretty well because, as you mentioned, they do have the ability to stop you from inspiring, at least a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, especially once they've inspired. And uh, um, Mad Scurry is still such a great card. Yep. And Drizgit's really key to the matchup. If Drizgit can get aim with his three squigs, you're probably not inspiring. It was two squigs, sorry. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think if they get a little bit, uh, if they get really anything that will help them make up for how much glory they give up when they uh, lose their fighters. Like I used to like pure carnage a lot because that was a nice, reliable bonus. Um, And then a lot of people would play keys as well. If they get anything like that, um, then I think that should improve their gameplay. Mm. Yeah, I think I think back in the era of keys, you could get like a rely, you could score reliably 25 plus glory with the gets um, and not really doing much aside from fighting with the squigs and drizgit and snark so pretty powerful uh opportunities there uh but let's move on to day two so michael tell us what you were feeling after day one you know you went three and one um did you feel good uh were you nervous i was actually so i was really happy just to make the top 16 cut the last two day one i was like 19th i think and i I was just outside the top 16 cut um so having made it this time, I was like, you know what? I could just go out in the first round and I'd be all right. I've made a, I've made, it's it's a massive tournament. I've made it to top sixteen. I can just chill. So weirdly for me, so normally I overstress. I was actually in quite a relaxed place. Um, the only I think I think the only worry I had, well, I wouldn't say there was any particular stress, but I was going into it worried about facing thorns for the reasons we've discussed i identified them as a problem i was just like i just kind of don't want to face them i don't really want to try and figure out how to play against them or just lose because i don't know the matchup and i think they've got too many advantages if i get a game against any of the other warbands i'll play my game and we'll see what happens you know right um well it's interesting you say that because the the moment you're you started on day two you played against a familiar face and they're 
a tried and true curse breaker uh matchup how did the how did that go oh it was tense it was incredibly tense so dan smedley for ready for action fame um he's been on the curse breakers for a long time i think he played them pretty much exclusively all of last year yeah, and in he fact played them at the event i was i attended in the uk mm. and he did that, really well with them was that one of the ones he went undefeated at uh i think he might have um yeah. he so I know one oh, of the great matches undefeated. he went undefeated, but he didn't make the final. He, you know, he didn't no, make no, the no. Cup. That was the one where I was the only undefeated player. Gotcha. Yeah, not that yeah. one then. Um, uh, and the reason him and Ash actually brought Curse Breakers, Ash, the other Ready for Action guy, um, brought Curse Breakers this tournament is because they weren't super, like they'd not played many games in the last month or so. And they were just like, you know what? We're going to take what we're used to. There's no point trying to reinvent the wheel because we've not got, we're not, like, we're not going to have much time to dedicate to practice. We're going to play what we're really good with. Um, so, God, it was tense. So, the first game against Dan, I won on tiebreakers um, for having more models on objective tokens. That's how tight it was. Um, and this I, game was on stream, right? Because I remember, I think I was watching this one. Uh, no, no, there wasn't on the stream this. No? Okay. No, just my semifinals and finals were for me were on stream. I think there was another... Um, he was on another one. I believe he played um, in both round four and then maybe round six. Okay. So he was on the stream a couple times, yeah. But I think it was against Thorns uh, the second time, and I honestly forget who his uh, the first one was. Sure. Maybe Thundrix. And uh, um, so he has a lot of passive glory in his deck. He's got, I think it's the, the you know, the two glory for scoring four spells and around and harness the storm, that type of thing. Um, so my usual plan of if I get boards, offset them and hide doesn't really work. Or it does work, but it doesn't work as well. I have to kind of, I can't just rely on passive glory. I am going to have to fight him. And those curse breaker stats are pretty scary because if I, you know, if I power up by waiting a turn to inspire, well, that's kind of what curse breakers do as well. So it's like we're both fighting each other with our perfect set of stats. Yeah, that's true. And you also, um, your Grimwatch deck is actually a little bit low on like extra damage. I noticed. Um, yeah. Like you didn't include snare or pit trap. Um, did you have seized weapon in there? No. no so literally, yeah. my only ways of getting to four damage were with the two great strength upgrades, great strength and the infaction great strength. Right, um, right. So I need one of them on, and then if you have any extra wounds, I cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's when you transfixing stare them. Yeah, so. yeah. So the second game, actually, against Dan. So the first game, like I said, was incredibly tight. He actually won the advantage, and he picked um, he picked to have tokens because he wanted to die my passive glory. Which you know, in that matchup, I'm actually not sure what the right option is. I I, so I think it's a reasonable option because I, I can't decide what the best one is. Um, he's got passive glory, and if he stops me having it, um, yes, he makes me inspire. But like I said, he's going to inspire from empowering and casting spells as well. So it's a tough one. Um, I did make sure to slightly change the board I picked for when I offset this time. I picked ones that had blocked terrain right at the front. So we uh, didn't have line of sight for stuff like Cry of Thunder because uh, he was running like Cry of Thunder Lethal Ward. He was running a lot of those cards. Um, which stopped him being able to kind of farm glory from across the map at me. Um, but yeah, the second game, I won it really early on. Basically, Valreek charged and won to the objective tokens in his territory, 
and then did the old transfixing stair pulling visage combo combo onto Amis after Amis had inspired um, and she was out of the game. Like the way the boards were, she, the only target she was going to be able to charge was Varik back, and I played sudden growth on her, and that was she could only charge about obviously next turn. So yeah, that was literally his arguably his like most scary fighter out of the game for the whole game in the first activation. Honestly, that's really good to hear because I I remember we talked a lot about appalling visage uh, mm. uh, just when you were prepping for the event, and I, I'm really glad to see that you found so much use with it. Um, it's just such an awesome card, and and that combo right there is, it's filthy. <laughs> oh, it's filthy. Yeah, yeah. So legitimately, I wasn't running it in my deck until you basically said, "Look, just try it." And as soon as I started trying it, I'm like, "Yeah, this is staying in. This is brilliant." Uh, even without the transfixing stare, ridiculous kind of combo, it's so good to help you inspire. Just pushing someone two hexes instead of the one makes a lot of difference. And like to knock someone off an objective because most people's counter pushes are only one hex, you know. That too, and, and you mentioned, you know, you can zone someone back out of your territory to inspire with it, mm. um, and push them into a lethal hex to finish them off. Oh, yeah, the amount of times I push people. Th- so if you've got the boards, you know, if you've got boards with two lethal hexes next to each other, it's even more nasty. Drag them through two lethal hexes is just ridiculous. That's awesome. Uh, Jonathan, did you have any follow-up questions for this particular matchup? Um, I don't think so. Honestly, I was a little bit surprised at how well um, Curse Breakers did. Um, they got four into the top... 16 um i'm not sure what i would give the grimwatch matchup um i would think it'd be something like 60 40 to the grimwatch um because it's so difficult for them to stop the inspire and then i feel like they would just die but um you know i guess those four players really knew what they were doing and i think that showed um i know that uh you know dan and ash are good players so um I'm not too surprised that they made the cut. I was just a little bit surprised by how many curse breakers there were. <laughs> That's two events now where we've uh, underestimated the number of curse breakers. We'll see. Um, yeah, it may just be that I don't play them very much. Um, yeah. I don't, I've I've sort of got my curse breaker fix at the beginning of Nightfall, <laughs> and honestly haven't felt the need to go back to them. Mm. Um, so, and I don't think a lot of people in my local meta play them either. So, it may just be that I. You know, I just don't see them that much. Archer's focus coming off the restricted list is probably quite nice for them. Yeah, and I can fired see that. up actually. Fired up is a good one for them, isn't it? It yeah. is, yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Because you would think that because of the uh, emphasis on you know fighting over those feature tokens, uh, a three-man warband wouldn't do too well at that, especially when they only move three hexes. Mm. Um, but their ability at range with Stormsire is is amazing, and then they can just use Unmaking, right? Yeah. So that kind of tips the scales uh, back towards, you know, Equilibrium. And then I think, you know, if you are taking those Spell cards, uh, I don't know if you take both Well of Power and Spell of Akshi, or Sphere of Akshi, but you probably take Akshi. Mm. Uh, uh, that range damage is so crucial, right? I agree, because now you can take Archer's Focus. I think Well of Power is probably what you do. You probably take Calc Risk. Actually, do you take Calc Risk? Oh, that's a tough call. You definitely take... I think Tome of Offerings you take. It's too good to not take. Um, maybe yeah. you take Calc Risk. Maybe you don't. Calc, it, it, Calc Risk is a risk in Curse Breakers. You know? Losing a wound on one of those fights is not pleasant. Yeah, I think I think off the top of my head, if I was going to put a list together, I would try to take uh, Akshi, Sudden Growth, and... Uh, the other one, Tome of Offerings. Tome of Offerings. Mm. Yeah, that that would be yeah. where I would start anyway. 
Yeah, but, they just have so many good objectives already, or or they're able to reliably score so many good objectives that uh, I'm not too surprised that they they do they do well. They're a solid warband. So yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how a lot of the warbands with just solid faction cards are still able to do well in you know shifting meta, and uh, it just goes to show that uh, if your warband has some strong you know, in faction cards, then they'll be quite relevant, right, for years to come. And so yeah. that also is a uh, ominous prediction for the Grimwatch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, Jonathan, I've talked about this a lot, and so have we, Mike, all three of us, that um, we feel like they're really strong. And, um, you know, I would love to see them do well for a little bit, but I think, you know, a year or two from now, if they're still, you know, running the game or competing uh, consistently then that might get a little uh a little stale yeah it's it's interesting to me just how powerful the Grimwatch are because like when beastgrave came out like the first two warbands we got despoilers and wild hunt they both seemed pretty reasonable like they, they were they seemed good but they also didn't seem broken so it's just a bit of a oh so this third warband is got everything right yeah i, I think that they do and personally my complaint with them if you really want to call it that, is um, the way that they force the rest of the meta to prepare for them, um, particularly with their Inspire condition, um, and then how good they are from it. I, I don't think there are very many, if any, reliable builds that can say, well, I'm going to let them Inspire, and then I'm going to beat them by doing X. Um, it just seems very difficult to allow that Inspire, and so I think you have to put all your resources into stopping it and that really kind of tilts your deck in a specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that I think... Because I actually think that when you're prepared for Grimwatch, there's a lot of decks that you can make that can beat them fairly reliable. Yeah. Um, or you know, at least it comes down to the luck or it comes down to the skill of the player. And I think that's good. But what I don't like is that it, in some ways, does limit the amount of viable playstyles that there even are. Um, because you have to be prepared to to win that matchup. Um, so it's kind of less of a balance issue and more of like an impact on the meta issue. But th- then again, they do have excellent cards. Like they have the best faction cards in the game um, or the highest number of them um, as well. So it'd be interesting to see how, you know, future factions compare to that um, and how the older factions are able to hold up. And that actually leads me into uh, one of our listener questions. Um, this is from Davy Calkins. I wanted to bring this up later, but it sound, seems like now is a perfect time. Uh, Davy asks, does Michael think any bad matchups exist for the Grimwatch? They seem like one of those rare breeds that isn't really scared of anything. Um, so Davy actually, is someone I also played a couple of camp games against. And he managed to beat me 2-0 with some Reavers, of all things. Um, I destroyed him with most of what I played. I say destroyed him with most of what I played. We only played like two matches, and I beat him in the other matchup. So that's complete misrepresentation of what happened. But so he played Fiends, I think, a week before, uh, like two weeks before the Grand Clash, and then he played Reavers, and the Reavers properly beat me. Um, when he beat me with Reavers, I was worried that the Reavers were going to be a matchup I'd have to worry about. Because if you think about it, Reavers are happy into Horde Warbands. They inspire quite easily if lots of fighters die, and they've got some good objectives for lots of fighters dying. And they've even got an objective for charging three times, which is fairly easy to do if your opponent fills every starting hex. Um, 
What I did realise, though, in those practice games was I'd recently taken this card out of my deck called Transfixion Stare. I kind of put it back in after that, and I, I never got to play the matchup against Reavers after that, but I do feel like if I draw it reasonably early, it's probably not so scary. It's probably still not you know, one of my happy ones where Grimrich roll over it, but it's suddenly I've got enough tools to kind of stem the bleeding. Um, so outside of that particular kind of weird thing, I, honestly, it's thorns. Thorns are what I'm scared of. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to face Thorns with Grimwatch. I, the, the, there's, 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 there's so many different tools they've got, and there's so many different kind of. If you match up all the stats across the, the fighters, it just feels like Thorns do better into you. Yeah, because without really even having to build towards it, they're naturally good at stopping the Inspire. Yeah. Um, so once they can do that, then it's just down to whatever their game plan is, and pound for pound, the Queen will outperform most of your fighters. Um, even the Everhang can be kind of a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, I'm just having three wounds. So, like, if I'm not inspired, like you said, I've got very little damage in my deck. I've only got Gristlewell, and he's not very accurate. Um, so the Everhang, actually, he's kind of ends up being a bit of a tank in the matchup. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually, that uh, you're relying so much on that great strength, uh, those two versions of it in your deck. But um, I think... You tried to go more for like I'm gonna reliably inspire and then get on objectives, mm. um, and then eventually I will take you down when I you know ramp up online. Yeah, that's generally the plan. As well as also there's there's some sneaky extra damage in the game now with those lethal tokens. They do if you've got all those positioning ploys. You know, if you hit an attack and there's somebody with only one wound left, it's not too ridiculous to use, like like you said, a Pauling Visage to just get that extra one damage out through a lethal hex. Yeah, exactly so. Um, another question that I just kind of thought of as we were talking about this matchup is you mentioned Reavers. I feel like the Wild Hunt play very similar to the Reavers. Um, do you think that's a matchup that you would be concerned about playing as the Grimwatch? Um... I wouldn't say I'd be concerned about it. I mean, you know, whenever you face someone across the field, you're never going to go, oh, I've got this in the bag. But I honestly don't fear Scathe's Wild Hunt. Um, The biggest issues are if you let Scathe inspire and you've really mispositioned your models so they can do a ridiculous scything attack. I mean, you just lose the game if that happens. Um, But like I was saying about Reavers, I feel like if any point in the first two turns I draw Transfixing Stare, I probably won. In fact, even more so against Scaife, because if they don't have like the ploy to remove a movement token, which I'm not even sure if it's good to take it, because I'm not sure if it does that much except for stopping Transfixing Stare. And if they don't have it, then I, you you literally stop their main fighter from doing anything. So you think the Wild Hunt have um, more of like one big bad guy you need to worry about versus the Reavers? Almost all of them are threats. Uh, yes, I do. They they focus more on their leader. I mean. I, the one thing that I do think is neat about the Wild Hunt and their, their whole mechanics is how the horn stuff works. And it's particularly good right now because there's not many good neutral accuracy ploys. I think really it's just Haymaker. Um, so they can they can basically make sure any attack hits. They just have to waste Natchin to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think the unfortunate thing with the horn, though, is that it's one of your activations. And then that means you're probably only moving three fighters forward in this matchup yeah which means they're probably going to inspire because you have appalling visage you have just attacks to push people out i know aman and i played a couple games with that matchup right when the grimwatch came out 
and he would just haymaker gristlewald snare or not snare yeah. pit trap or push me into a lethal or like and then if escape dies in the second round like the game is probably over <laughs> yeah. that's the thing um, like, you're forced to go hell for leather to stop the grimwatch inspiring but if you do they just pick the most perfect counter charges right right and i mean I think there will be some games where you get Tome of Offerings, you get Trophy Hunter on Scathe, and then you do get an AoE attack off the Sky thing. Um, but I don't know if that's going to happen every time. And then sometimes I just miss those Sky thing attacks. <laughs> or you'll get one, and then he's charged, and that's it. Like it's. Uh, I think I also think with them you want to take a lot of push ploys to try to avoid charging with him. If you can get an attack with him and then a charge with him, that's like really big. But I don't know. It's it's difficult. And yeah. uh, commanding stride might do work for them. Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah, they have really, a pounce, which is really good too. Mm. Sorry. No, no, yeah, it's it's really interesting. You mentioned the uh, Tome of Offering trophy belt. I played a cam game with uh, Jimmy Jimmy Molini, and he it was funny. He got a four glory kill and a three glory kill. He put mm-hmm. tome and trophy belt on scathe. And then he had like run down uh, or run through, which is the leader specific objective. And even then, he only still won by two or three glory, which goes to show that uh, the Grimwatch are just insane when it comes to glory. Um, they can just score so much. And it's 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 really interesting to see that the, also that you can also get four glory kills or three glory kills, which I think is also crazy. Um, and I'm surprised people haven't leaned into it more. Mm. So I had that in the Grimwatch as a backup plan. And I don't even think it necessarily fits the Grimwatch that well, but it's just such a strong thing to be able to do that if you can fit it in, you should do. Oh, you're talking with uh, Trophy Belt and Tome of Offerings as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. If you can score a Supremacy's Worth of Glory for a kill, then, like, yes, do it. <laughs> well, yeah, because we played a cam game, right? Where, like, everything was going kind of your way. You got the objectives. You had some good rolls. And then I just slam both of those on my duke i think you had to like sacrifice your duke to like give me a like a meaty target so that you could accomplish your game plan yep let's get into your thundric matches so you played two games versus thundric's profiteers we kind of went a little bit into the uh the thought process on the matchup um but you know a lot of people have said that this matchup is favored towards the profiteers and Mm -hmm. I, i alluded to this a little bit earlier as well what was your strategy going into these games um, if I get advantage, I want to offset the boards, and I am not only going to try and get a free inspiration off it, but I'm going to try and basically almost never engage um, until because I feel a thundric deck is always built around trying to score stuff, not just from killing, but from having made attacks. So you know, warning shot, um, what armor, get the hands, all that type of stuff. Um, and if I don't give them targets, then I have some passive glory in the deck. It's not a massive amount, but I have some. I could I could win with like five or seven glory. Um, if I inspire, then when they try and come to fight me, my stats are much better. Um, yeah, generally it was to choke them out and kind of play like I was almost a control deck. Um, the uh, yeah, I I think if you get boards, the the matchup is so skewed in your favor, it's ridiculous. And I also think that Thundrix, I, I, well. Going into it, I was sh- I was suspicious Thunderix players wouldn't necessarily expect this, 
um, of like a Grimwatch player. Like they'd expect them to be more neat wanting the tokens. So like they'd, they'd pick three tokens to think, ah, I'm denying them three tokens. And I just sit back and go, right, try and score any glory. I dare you. Um, on the other hand, the second player, so the first Lundric player I played in the day actually had supremacy in his deck. So my plan of fully offsetting and out passive scoring him went a little bit wrong. He managed to get a fair bit of glory on the table from kind of holding back, but I still like I just I just waited, got some passive glory, and then ran him over my inspired stats. It was the game, yeah, the game against the first Thundrix guy where he he he's a nice guy, it was lovely to chat to, but he just wasn't he wasn't on the same level as Bartek, uh, the Polish guy. Um and I kind of executed my game plan, it just happened, you know. So then let's talk about Bartek. You know, you, mm-hmm. you're mentioning that different levels here. What did Bartek do so well that made those games uh, so much harder for you? So first thing for him, uh, he got he won uh, advantage both games and he chose to give me the tokens, which means he's thought about the matchup and he knows that he, he's picked what I consider to be the absolute correct thing to do. I mean, I know it's technically different to the other Thunderix player because he's not running supremacy. So that makes a bit of difference, but I don't think that one objective changes at all. I definitely think you need to, as a Thunderix player, go as wide as possible and just kind of advance as a gun line and um, try and... You're not necessarily trying to kill as much as you can for turn one, but you are trying to shoot as many things as you can and kind of protect your key cut targets. So kind of go for attacks that don't leave you ex- exposed if possible um, and just kind of focus on just shooting everything, anything you can to score your objectives, I think is how I'd how I would play Thunderix if I was. Um, the, the one thing I think he didn't do super well was he wasn't quite aggressive enough. So he positioned correctly, right? He, 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 you know, he got the boards wide, he gave me the tokens, but he kind of he kind of played a bit a bit defensively. He, he definitely got a lot of attacks in, in the game. I do think maybe I changed the dynamic a bit because I, I threw, I can't remember if it was both games, but at least one of the games I threw the bats into one of his objective tokens as like a sacrificial go after this and let me inspire type move. And he went for that, uh, which did, and d- don't get me wrong, he scored glory off it. He got stuff from, from going for it, but it gave me, I think both games I inspired turn one. Um, and I think with the boards as they were, if he'd have gone for it, he could have stopped that. So do you think that him trying to score cards like Headshot and What Armor was the, not necessarily the right thing to do instead of stopping your Inspire? Because you can always it, score those later, right? It is really tricky. But yes, no, I do think that's right. Uh, I, I think, Yeah, I think you're right. He, he needs to not focus on trying to score them. And he needs to focus on stopping the Inspire. And like, if you do it through charging into my territory, you can potentially just score them through your play. Uh, you know, naturally, you're maybe not focusing on it as much, so it's less likely to happen. But you're also getting the nice thing of I'm not inspiring, and if I don't inspire, that's that's a big loss to me. Especially because the Duke gets cleave and goes to three damage. He becomes like a he, he starts making dwarf kebabs if he inspires. <laughs> um, so you think uh, setting up as aggressively as possible, even when you're playing a uh, acolyte deck, is the right move with the property? <sighs> Yeah, I mean the the tone of the cataphrane. Yeah, so the acolyte of the cataphrane's objective does it does feel like it changes the dynamic a bit. And I think I think it's it's because Garter um sorry Bartek knows he's got this big surge of glory at the end that maybe if he overcommits and feeds me some free kills, he's worried about just losing the game off that. 
Um, so it's, it's a tricky one, but I, I think you've just got to go for it. You've just got to YOLO in um, and just, which, which is scary, right? Because you're relying a bit on dice. If, if I charge him, if I counter charge with Gristlewell, you can lose Iron Hell before um, Get the Hence even is drawn, which is not nice. Um, so I don't think it's an ideal situation, but I still think that's what you've got to do. I think you've just got to take it as it comes and just go for it. In fact, maybe, maybe even have Thundric go in fairly early. Um, if you if you can get him inspired in the first round, then have him charge in in the second activation or something. Because it, it's different. Because, you know, like you said, my deck lacked damage, and maybe he doesn't realize that I'm not running Pit Trap or Snare. But even against someone who is running Pit Trap or Snare, they're only likely to have one of them early game. And is Gristlewell going to hit an inspired Iron Hell? Like, that's a lot of things going against you for him to actually die. Whereas if Iron Hell does get in the middle of the Grim, uh, the Grim Watch's board, he can literally just sit there and attack, attack, attack. He doesn't even have to charge. Uh, and that's a nightmare. And the other interesting thing uh, with the Grim Watch is you can sort of force them into suboptimal moves by throwing, let's say you throw Allenson into their territory early. Mm. Normally you wouldn't want to fight Allenson because he's pretty terrible. But if he's in your territory, you have to get him out. Because um, yeah. it'll stop your inspiration, and so I, t- to me, the game would be very different if you were if you set up aggressively, charged three or four fighters into the territory. Um, you might you might take a little bit more damage from the uninspired version, but it's going to set up your turn two um, a lot more. So uh, I agree that wide boards is the way to go, though, because I think as uh, Aman and I have learned playing the profiteers, the main thing that they need is the enemy to interact with mm. um if they have if, if you're near them and you're fighting them and they can brawl with you then they're you're sort of playing into their game um so uh, i i think he did i mean I, I you know those those were great games they were very very close and i think he did really well but i think maybe if he had just prioritized the uh, prioritized the inspiration a little bit better um he might have been able to get you. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. to be fair, like I said, it, it's a really tricky decision. Yeah, because oh, absolutely. If, if the Harriers are on one of your objectives, because I think he ran Path to Victory as well. Yeah. So yeah. that's, they. If, if he, I don't know if he had Path to Victory in hand at one of those times, but like if he does, then it's like, there's so much potential glory that he can gain from just killing the bats and then camping objective tokens. But the problem is he could get that later in the game. Um, and stop my inspiring if he goes hell for leather. It's it's a tricky one. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I, I think that was the I think you were the first uh, Grimwatch player that he had played at the event. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that if you aren't as experienced against the Grimwatch, then you may not uh, really know what the priority is. So, no, you know, not to take anything away from. His games. I mean, they were they oh, were very very close. They were ridiculous. He made a fa- he made his own fantastic sidestep transfixing stair player, which almost won him a game. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought he had that one. <laughs> it was it was tight. It was very tight. Yeah, I remember watching that game, and me and Tom, uh, one of your co-authors, we we were just messaging each other frantically, like, oh, is what's going to happen here? What are we going to think is happening? So, uh, I will say, I really enjoyed the stream, and and I'm glad to see that I got to watch you play. In more than one game, because uh, it's just fun watching high-level competitive Underworlds. Hey. Um, I, one thing I was super proud of was the Confusion Valrique play. Because um, oh. I was counting Glory, I think it was the end of the first game, 
it was in, in turn three and I was like I know how many tomes he's got on and it's obvious he's playing Acolyte at this point because he's got lots of random tomes on Thunderick. Like you don't run all those tomes unless you're playing Acolyte. Um, and I'm looking at how much glory I've got, and I'm not like I know I can get supremacy, and I think I have one of the glory from one of the objective like fired up or something like that, uh, or solid gains. And uh, I was like, this is really tight. If he scores like a single other glory, I'm gonna lose. So how am I going to get to him? And then I realised all my fighters who could do any decent damage were not in charge range. And I was like, wait a minute. I can move the Butcher next to Valrik, and then I can Confusion her, and then she's close enough. <laughs> that, that literally won me the game. Yeah, the movement and push stuff is insane. Um, and Confusion is such a good card. I don't know if people realize how good it was going to be going into the event. And uh, I'm sure you took quite a people unawares. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think I said in my article, read the article, best blog, um, well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to claim it's the best blog. I'm sure you disagree, man. Um, that uh, I had games against other Grimwatch players with Confusion, and they didn't run it. And I, I'd literally play it, and they'd be like, well, that's it, GG. I, I, I literally can't counter this. Like, you, pl- you play it at the end of a turn, and there's nothing they can do. There's no combination of power cuts. The only possible thing they have is Restless Prize, and I run my own Restless Prize. So, yeah. There it is, yeah. I wouldn't... Uh, I'm not going to comment on the best blog comment <laughs> too much, but... Um... Uh, I think everyone has a uh, great content and I think you should check all of them out. Um, you know, but if you do have a preference, then, uh, you know, that's definitely your thing. Um, oh, you're too, you're too well managed. <laughs> someone's got to be. <laughs> so, um, I guess that leads into the thorns matchup, which you played Phil Kelly in the final. And we've kind of discussed, um, this matchup a little bit already in regards to how strong they can be against the grim watch and uh, some of the unique play styles that uh, they are able to do through their faction mechanics. Um, one of our listeners, Jason Murray, from the Battle Mallet podcast, uh, his question was, how did you know you think uh, your deck played into the Thorns meta prior to the event? And then let's you know talk about how it actually played out during the final. So prior to it... Um... So I, uh, frustratingly, I hadn't actually practiced against Thorns. So one of the reasons I did fear the Thorn matchup is because I didn't have experience with it. So I had all these thoughts about how they could be really dangerous. And then I was like, I haven't really tried this out. This is going to be interesting. Um, I think in my head, I basically thought it came down to my deck probably has more pushes than them. Um which is going to be really useful for contesting stuff like supremacy. I think I can disrupt their supremacy better than them, but their first round is just going to be much more action efficient than me. Varclav uses one activation to get all their tokens. I need to have pack advance in hand, or I'm using two or three to do it. Um, And they can devote the rest of their first turn to messing me up. Whereas I'm like kind of on damage control and trying to get on those tokens. Um, I still think though, that the Grimwatch have much better infraction objectives. Like having a surge only, uh, a, a, you know, sorry, a surge, our only way out is absolutely insane. A pervasive delusion, especially the way I built the deck, was crazy. Uh, is it shifting madness for just sitting on one specific objective token? That's yeah. crazy. There's a lot of really good objectives that the Thorns don't have. So I felt like if I can ride out a dangerous first turn and do everything I can to kind of try and stabilize the game, I should win against Thorns. That was my thinking going into it. But if I have a very bad first turn, um, and this is going to sound odd, but 
I don't. I'm not talking about like glory totals, right? I'm not talking about like if one player scores five, one scores one. I'm talking more about what key fighters are dead, who's inspired, like how close the queen is to just more kills, that type of thing. Um, uh, when I'm talking about how the turn one goes, um, if they're in my territory knocking at my door, I'm very scared basically. But if I've kept them out, I've inspired, and I'm ready to rumble, then I'm happy. Um, and then I actually went into playing against it. <laughs> um, so I wasn't expecting Phil's play style, genuinely. I was expecting a Thorn player to kind of be the more passive type um, who would be kind of maybe a flex between objective and aggro, um, but like the aggro bits would be the queen coming in with a cheeky sudden of appearance and maybe the Everhanged kind of making the odd charge early in the game. I wasn't expecting anyone to play with the queen and Varklav and Everhanged up front treating them almost like a three-fighter warband that Varklav will use one activation for to say, oh yeah, by the way, all our chain rasps sit on tokens as well. Um, that was scary. Yeah, and it's very unorthodox as well, right? So um, what were your thoughts going in when he first started setting the board up like that? <sighs> so just going into the match itself, I was very scared because in his semi-final, he played the mirror match. Well, sorry, not the mirror match, but the same matchup against Jay Clare. Um, Jay Clare was on uh, Grimwatch. And I genuinely consider Jay Clare to be the best player of the game full stop. I mean, obviously I'm talking about UK because it's all I've got experience with. But yeah, I consider Jay Clare to be an incredible player. And um, he, from what I heard, felt absolutely demolished Jay. Um, I heard it wasn't even close. Um Jay actually was just about to start talking in detail about the match. And I said, you know what? I'm going to recuse myself and go over because I didn't want to hear about Phil's deck. Um, but yeah, I was really scared when I heard that result. Um, and then when I saw Phil setting up that aggressively, because uh, he also won board advantage and he picked um, he picked the three tokens. Uh, hold on. Is that right? Or did I pick? Did I win boards? Uh, um, he- no. He- he picked three, I think. Yeah, he picked three. and So I did my full offset. Um, going on the kind of... Which was a really tricky call, by the way. Because basically... Yeah, so my default... I think a Thorns player is going to play objective play. And I think they're going to have some cheeky aggro. But the cheeky aggro is going to be like 30% of the deck. Chatting to Phil um, just before the game started, we started talking... I think I mentioned this in my interview. We are talking about board games. And he said that he really likes to play board games as an aggressive player. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to presume he's not mind-gaming me. And I'm going to just assume he's an aggressive player. So when I won advantage, I went full offset. Um, him setting up like that... It, I don't know. It, I think it's particularly bad against my version of the Grimwatch because I don't have the damage to fight Varklav or the Queen. Um, I think if you do have Snail Pit Trap, your deck probably does better into the way that he plays it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, being able to lock the Queen down with stuff like Appalling Visage and Transfixing Stare is absolutely incredible set of tools. And really, like, I actually could have won that first game. Um, I mean, let's not talk about the fact that I forgot this one didn't actually die. Let's. So there's, there's, yeah, oh, that, that, that stuff's just silly. We're not mentioned. Me that. and Tom were livid in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> but um, outside of that silliness, like I kept up in glory up until the last bit of scoring. The problem was, whilst keeping up in glory, he was just advancing these models, and yes, Crystal War died, so I lost one of my threats, and I didn't inspire my other fighters, so the Duke didn't go up to three damage. And basically, I, I can't kill the Queen of Varklav. I, I just got into this weird situation where I was like, I need multiple actions to do it. 
I think I managed. I, I either managed. To, I think I killed the Everhanged in that game. I can't remember. Or I might have killed Varklav or the Queen through Mortal Black. I think I killed one of his three fighters while the other two were running me over. And then he just he just scored. He out he outscored me at the end. And I was like, I, I kind of went away from that first game. I was like, eh, this has gone really badly. But I think I can still take this match. I didn't like. I didn't panic. I didn't think, oh god, this matchup is an absolute nightmare for me. I'm like. I, if Gristle Wells attack had hit in that like first charge, so I was more concerned about his attack missing than I was concerned about him dying, right? If he'd lost one of those pieces, then I'd have actually inspired and the whole thing turns around and he'd have lost one of his pieces. So yeah, I was like, I think I can do this. Um, and then the biggest, the biggest swing in the whole match was actually the board he picked for game two. He picked a board that I could completely abuse with uh, offset. So he picked one that had a big gap in one of its corners and it was the type of corner that the um, I used the three lethal hex one, um, and it basically meant none of my fighters were in charge range of any of his fighters. Um, so I literally had a whole free turn to just chill out. Um, and he did the thing of going on to the objective tokens, and I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to go hell for leather trying to stop you from scoring supremacy because I don't think you've got it, um, or at least odds are you don't have it. And he didn't have it for like two turns in a row, which was cool. Um, so yeah, uh, game two was my plan happened. Passive glory, um, just hit the attacks I needed to. Um, and then we had the weird thing of we found out we had like 15 minutes left, so we just agreed to play one round for the next game. Um, at which point I won advantage, which is absolutely massive because if we're playing a one-round game, I'm just like I don't care about all the normal stuff I care about. I don't care about inspiring. I don't care about like killing key fighters or even keeping key fighters alive. I just care about glory. So I went. I picked tokens, and I was just like, I know my deck's stupid. If I get three tokens, I can just score a lot of glory. And then, even despite that, I got a bit lucky because his queen was set up next to Valrique. I made sure it was Valrique and not a two-wound uh, fighter, right? So he couldn't one-shot them. But I didn't right. realize. I think he had pit trap in hand. Um, so he had pit trap in hand, and he had branching fate, and he had strong start. And then he missed Valrique, and he didn't score branching fate. I just put transfix instead. That was it. The game was won then. There was literally nothing he could do then. Um, Which is wild, right? Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, you guys didn't get to play a full match, but with the tools and the situation at hand, um, that card was clearly your MVP. Um, but even if you, even if, let's say, Phil did hit and did score a couple cards, did you have, I don't remember your hand, but did you have the right hand to capitalize on the fact that you can score immediate off objectives? So I think I scored something like seven glory for that turn. Uh, which I'm, it's a, a pretty solid amount of glory. I think even if the queen, uh, so if the queen scores um, branching fate, I'm still put myself like 80%, like maybe even more than 80% favored to win that game. However, if she kills Valrique, gets strong start and branching fate, I think that combination of stuff probably, like even with seven glory coming out the turn, I'm probably not favored. I think I've still got a reasonable chance because I've got, like I said, a fair bit of glory at the end there, but I probably give myself 30 to 40%. Right. It's crazy how much those roles can make a difference. I, I suppose it's a one-round game. It doesn't. It's not that surprising, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's take it back a little bit. Walk us through, you know, what you were mentally going through after the game one loss. You know, like as a uh, individual who's in the finals in, mm-hmm. you know, a moment that they've always wanted to be in, and they're so close to reaching their own goal. Um, how do you kind of pick yourself back up and get that win in game two? Um. It was really weird, actually. I, so, yeah, I, I, you can tilt, right? 
Um, it's very easy to just go, oh, everything went my, it went against me. I don't know what to do. He's all over me. But I just realised that if that Gristlewell attack had hit, that whole game would have gone differently. And it was only like a two fury attack. I don't think I had Haymaker, right? So it's not particularly odds on. I think two fury into one dodge is 44%. So it's a little bit less than a 50-50. But I mean, the other end of the spectrum is I could have had Haymaker or Potion of Rage to make it odds on. Um, and I'm just like, I know that that game could have gone differently. And I'm happy. Yeah, I, I, I it was just one of those. I was like, yeah, let's play it out. Let's see how it happens. I've seen a lot of his tech. Like, I think also, I'm quite happy that I think he's probably going to underestimate me because he smothered me out so hard in that first game. Um, because he kind of got to be on top of me from the beginning. He got to do his game plan. Um, let's see what happens if I get to stop him playing his game plan. Yeah, that's really cool. I think it's cool that you were able to learn from the first game and then know how to adapt and then, you know, just kind of look at it logically. Like, you know, it was a very close game and maybe the next one will go my way. Mm. So. I think that's probably important too, because once you go on tilt, I feel like anybody's performance drops like significantly. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like you, you make yourself lose the game if you get in your head like that. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about um, as far as the games went? Um, I know uh, personally, I just want to congratulate you. It's really cool to uh, see you win after all the hard work that you put into it and uh you just definitely deserve it so oh thank you yeah i can say that uh completely echo those sentiments i think as someone who's you know put a lot of work into the community and talking about tactics and really up in your game um as long as that i've known you um i've definitely seen you know your work ethic improve towards winning one of these events and uh you know it was just a matter of time where uh you just had a little bit of fate on your side and you know, I'm I'm really happy to see you win, dude. Like Jonathan said, you definitely deserve it. Hey. So um glad you enjoyed the event. Um what did your what were your thoughts on the tournament experience overall? I know that you mentioned some of this in your part one article, but do you think the tournament ran well? And I know that this is something that Jonathan really um feels strongly about, so I'll definitely, you know, give him the floor. But, uh, you know, how can you improve that experience as well? Uh, do you want me to go first then? Sure, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, uh, actually, it's quite quite uh, two different, very different answers. So, the experience as a player was absolutely fantastic, right? Um, the At Warhammer World, the venue is so good. Um, like, you've got the pub on site, and it's a, it's a genuinely nice pub. Um, the food is really nice. You get free food as well, which is, well, I say free, it's included in the price of the ticket. And it's so spacious as an event. Um, and that exhibition that's on site, if you get time in between games, is absolutely stunning. Um, so, like, the whole experience is good. Also, as well, with the quiz night and just seeing a lot of your friends, you know, good acquaintances that you see at other tournaments and getting to chat to them all again. Like, yeah, the whole thing is really nice. It's, it's very enjoyable. How the tournament was run itself was fairly negative to be honest like i loved the fact that they went for um another two-day tournament that was great and they had to cut the top 16 that was great um but the way the event pack was written uh seemed to basically say well say it seemed to say it did say that your results from the first day stood despite it being a cut to top 16 which is just crazy because there'd be people who were 3-1 who didn't make the cut who could potentially make the final 
And then there are people who are in the top 16 cut who potentially can't make the final, depending on how the games play out. So yeah, that's obviously they changed it and they did what everyone expected them to do, which is uh, an actual separate top 16 tournament. Um, but the problem is they had to change it. Like there's an event pack and this is the tournament that technically people have paid for. And these are the rules and you're changing them based on player feedback on the day. And don't get me wrong. It was the right call, but that's a dangerous set of precedents to go down because, you know, players aren't always invested in, the best thing for the game but potentially sometimes for what's good for them um and then there was you know i said about on the blog about what happened with ollie that was pretty that was really sad i mean so basically for those who don't know ollie um had an individual game that was a tie in a match so he won the match he won it well he would have normally won it 2-0 but this individual game was a tie and they didn't know how to put it into bcp so they had him and his opponent roll off to see who won the game and Ollie lost the roll-off, so he got that game loss. And that meant he came 18th instead of top 16. Um, so he didn't hit day two because of, like, well, the TOs getting it wrong, in all honesty, uh, which sucks. Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed um, at a lot of events is the event staff just doesn't know how to use BCP correctly. Um, because basically that's what it is. A a game, a game tie in a match. Like if you go, you get two wins and a draw, the game tie doesn't enter into your final score at all because a game tie is not a tiebreaker. Only game losses are. So that should have been a a two O victory. Um, and that's just according to the event rules. That's how the game works. Mm. Um, but if you don't know how to use BCP and you think that a draw should be entered in for some reason, um, then you might make that kind of a mistake. So one thing that I would definitely um, like to see in the future is that the you know the tournament staff kind of understands how their tournament software works. Uh, I mean, particularly I'm I'm a fan of BCP because all the data gets out there and um, it's all published. Um, but I know this uh, this is not the first event that there have been issues with whatever program they've been running. Um, I know that Scotland had some issues because they didn't know how to do ties with that program either. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's pretty important because it can sort of ruin people's day. Um, like, that's really unfortunate for Ollie. And, I mean, nobody wants to see that happen. So, I guess I would kind of challenge the event staff to have a little bit of a better understanding of how everything works. I can assure you that BCP does everything that it needs to do for this game. Um, unless there's like actually a problem with the system and it's not working or something like it, it's fully functional. Um, so it's always annoying to me when people say that, you know, it didn't work or they couldn't do this because usually it's user error. That's just kind of frustrating because <laughs> I, I would like more people to use BCP because it's you know so easy to track the data, but, um, it just takes a little bit of, you know, training, I guess on it. Um, and you know, maybe that's something that BCP can can do in the future is show, you know, maybe have more videos about how to use it, or maybe that's something we should do. I'm not sure, but, and hopefully that will, that'll improve in the future. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things, you know, people have to be cognizant about is, you know, people are taking time uh, out of their schedule uh, away from their family, spending some money to travel to these events. And so trying to give them the best experience possible is paramount regardless of they win or and i think when you know it's really easy to blame 
um, the hosts of events or the TOs and stuff like that. And uh, to a certain degree, like, yes, some of their decisions do matter. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we kind of talked about this earlier, is we can look for more clarification from Games Workshop uh, in regards to how certain things should be done. The fact that we still have conversations on how ties work or, you know, there are changes being made to event packs because people aren't really sure on how to proceed given numbers is is something that I would like to see Games Workshop take the onus on rather than, you know, blaming BCP or maybe even the TOs of events. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I, I, I would love to see a event pack that scales based on the number of players. Um, I mean, I know that the SoCal Open had a, an issue where, you know, the official event pack is a two-day event with a cut to a top 16, and what they decided to do was just follow that, even though they only had 15 players, which, I mean, I, I think that's perfectly fair. I think if you have an event pack and you advise, you know, you advertise that you're going to have a event that follows this event pack, it's it's kind of on you to follow that event pack. Um, it's not really fair to the players to change it. But and then I think what ended up happening there is it became apparent, you know, as the event proceeded that following that event pack um, was kind of ridiculous. And so then I think the players were kind of putting the TO in a situation where they had to, you know, they were wanting them to change things. And, uh, you know, a better event pack would remove that situation entirely um, and not put TOs in a weird situation. And then, you know, then the flip side of it is, you know, the TOs need to make sure they understand the, the software that they're using. And that's just part of the responsibility. But, I mean, of course, you know, we love TOs. We're so thankful that they're, you know, running these events that we can go to and, and all that. I mean, it's, you know, just always the five or 10% that, you know, maybe could be improved that is also worth talking about, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think um, catering to the participants in the event, but also understanding, as you mentioned, VCP and other tools that you're using is very important. I know that an experience is something that these events are, regardless if you win or lose, right? You go meet people, uh, you go go to another location, whether it's another city or even another country. And um, I think making sure that those experiences are worthwhile is, again, the most paramount because it could definitely leave a bitter taste in someone's mouth and they might not want to attend an event in the future. Um, so you you alluded to uh, like a event pack with different number stipulations. Um, what would you want that to look like? And And Michael, I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Uh, but Jonathan, you seem like you've got an idea here. Um, I mean, I think the details would have to be, you know, ironed out as they wrote the pack. But I mean, personally, I don't know if we need to have um, like a two-day event if we have less than, say, like 32 people. Um, I think it could just be a one-day event. Um, I mean, I would also like Games Workshop to be a little bit more discerning when they um, allow certain events to be Grand Clashes. Um, I don't think it really makes sense to have the Grand Clash event size, you know, be anywhere from 12 players to 160. Um, to me, those are different. Those are different classes of events. Um, and I mean, you know, not to take anything away from anyone that goes to any of those events. It's not really their fault that the event is so small. But I mean, if this is the ultimate competitive games workshop game, then I think that there should be some kind of uh differentiation between um those event sizes you know you it's 
I mean, even given, even using my example, like, you know, winning a 40 something person event, um, is a little bit different than winning a 114 person event like Mike just did. Um, so, I mean, to me, it would be cool if there were more classes of events, um, or even just, a something in the packet that says, if you have under 32 players, you do this many rounds. If you have under 64, you do this many rounds, that kind of thing. And then a TO can say, well, this is how many players we have. We're going to do this format. Um, and it'll just, it would just be in the packet and they would just follow it and it would remove a lot of the questions that they have and avoid them changing things mid event, which I think is the main thing that you want to avoid. Um, cause it's just not really fair to everyone that goes into the event thinking one thing and then it changes. Yeah, pretty much agree with that. Um, there's not, I don't think there was anything else in the event pack that was too ambiguous that needed sorted out. It was just so, yeah, to clarify based on the amount of people, so like that SoCal, SoCal situation doesn't happen. Um, but also, yeah, like, you know, I say make it better, but what they actually ended up doing for the Grand Clash, where it's a top 16 cut, that's what I think all the players want. Like, we don't want your results to carry over from day one. Um, actually make the you know the top 16 cut a separate tournament seed it if you want to so you know maybe the top two players even you know get a buy or something um but definitely have it as a separate thing you know yeah i i almost think that maybe that was a mistake when they put that in the the packet because i don't i just don't think it makes sense that you would keep the record because i mean they're fortunate that the event was large enough where the top 16 were all uh three and one um, but if the event was a little bit smaller, like the previous one was, you'd you'd have a couple people in there that were two and two. Um, and even though they would have made the top 16 cut, if they followed the packet, it would be impossible for them to win the event, um, which just doesn't really make sense. Yeah, you get really weird situations come up if you keep results from day one. I mean, for instance, do you yeah. even let people play each other again? Like That's a really weird one, because if you're keeping results, you probably shouldn't. However... Like, obviously, the situation is where it's going to come up. So, yeah. Right. I think it needs to be completely reset. Uh, mirror or uh, Rematches should be allowed. And then the only thing that the first day affects is who gets into the cut and then the order that they're paired initially. So, mm. um, which, I mean, I think that seems pretty standard. And it, it's what they actually ended up doing. So, I think they would you, probably Would you be agreed. tempted to give them a buy, like the top two players? So, like, if you go and defeat in the first day and do well enough, you maybe get that little bit of an extra something? Uh, I could so see it. That, uh, I don't know. It was like mixed reviews, right? Like mm-hmm. there was 26 people at the event. They cut to a top six because uh, the TO was like, well, generally you cut to top 16, which is like a quarter of what you would see. So he kind of did the same thing as like what quarter of the the seedings. And because it was a top six, um, I received a buy and another player did as well. And honestly, I don't know if it really made a difference. Yeah. Frank- I like getting a game in so that I can run back my game plan. And so for me, like my first game of the day was the second game of my opponent. And yeah. I almost think he had an advantage because he was like, all right, I'm in game mode. Where for me, it was like, okay, this is my first game of the day. I have to get into my game mode, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think personally what I would like to see is similar to the way the number of rounds should be tailored to the number of people at the event. Um, I think maybe the cuts could be also. Um, I think sometimes a top 16 is going to be too big, yeah. um, and a top eight would actually be better. Um, 
I mean, just off the top of my head, what I would want it to do is include everyone that was undefeated and then the smallest number possible to still get eight or 16 players of the three and ones. Mm. Um, so if you had, I, mean, I think at this event, I might've just thought that a top eight would have been better or yeah. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's nice to, it's you know good to make the cut, but. It also but, creates that cool narrative, like that comeback mechanic. Uh, you know, even if you yeah. take a loss on one, you know, you've benefited from it. Michael's benefited from it. Jimmy Molini sure. benefited from it. There are really cool ways in which, you know, players can come back the next day. Just, you know, if they had a bad matchup or a bad set of rolls or draws. I kind yeah. of like it, quite frankly. But at the same time, I feel like I'm a better one-day player than a two-day player. Mm. So... I mean, it could go either way, but I think it. I think it's a really cool opportunity for players who uh, don't have everything go their way come back on the next day. It. Um. I think Neil. Neil, the first winner of the two-day Grand Clash, the one in July, he'd also dropped around in his first day as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I. And maybe this. And actually, this event was probably big enough to require a 16. Um. I think the previous one. Because I, I think when you get to the point that you're including everyone that goes three and one, then that starts just it just seems like a little bit of a it just seems too so big to me. The previous one was weird because it was yeah. it, the previous one was five rounds. Mm-hmm. So the previous one had everyone who went four and one. OK, yeah. Um, and then I think I think it ended up with two people who went three and two and the three and twos are really what you want to cut out. Uh, but the, one of the three and twos got only got in because uh, I think it's because Tony dropped Tony uh, Field. Right. Uh, he couldn't. He couldn't. He, he didn't have time to play the second day. Uh, but yeah, right. there would have been at least one three and two that got in naturally, which is, uh, yeah. It just seems kind of strange. Um, I mean, obviously, if that's the format and the player gets in, then more power to him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I thought top eight at Nova, which was about forty-eight people, that seemed reasonable because i believe it was five undefeated or there were some ties in there so it was kind of weird and then we had i think three people get in with a loss and to me that's a reasonably good ratio um and now that i think about it the event that just happened i think with 16 that is pretty good because i want to say about a quarter of the three and ones got in yeah um which i think makes sense i think i was thinking of the previous one where everybody that that lost a game that only lost one game got in and then a couple people that lost two got in, and it just seems like you're doing a lot of work at that point. <laughs> like, you know, just seems unnecessary. But yeah, I would like to see more grand skirmishes. I think there's been one, and mm-hmm. you know, from the conversation we've had with TOs, and then with some of the packs going around uh, and being leaked online, you know, if events like SoCal or Tabletop Scotland who don't have the numbers for a grand clash make it a grand skirmish. Um, at least making an event where people can go get cool prizes, play a game they enjoy, and even get. Uh, I think Grand Skirmishes have their own trophies, but mm-hmm. you know, a Grand Clash should be uh, a rare event. It should be a large event. And even though there is a, I guess it's harder for us in the U.S. to get those numbers. I mean, like look at LV on Adepticon. We can do that at some of the mm-hmm. bigger events. And so if there's only three or four Grand Clashes every year, I don't necessarily think there's a problem with that. Um, because if you really want to win one, you can, you still have three or four shots 
Um, but if you're just out there to go have some fun and play some games, then a skirmish could better suit your needs. I agree. I think more of those would be good. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would I would be fine if we had less in the U.S. If because it would probably help people consolidate them as well. Like they could plan to travel to the big three every year, something like that. Yeah, we don't have an awesome train station or train system like the U.K. <laughs> yeah, uh, we need Elon Musk to get on there, right? Or have twenty five dollars <laughs> from Poland. Yeah, to Nottingham. Yeah. That geeks me out. Um, so I think we've talked enough about uh, tournament thoughts. Uh, solid points all around, and definitely something that um, has potential to be better. Uh, but great, great improvement since Night Vault for sure. Uh, Michael, I know this is something that you really wanted to talk about, which was the Masters. Um, you know, as we know, the Masters is being held at Nova uh, in 2020. It's um, going to be. We're not really sure actually what some of the details surrounding it. Uh, the impression is that. You know, if you've done reasonably well in competitive events, you'll probably be invited. Um, what are your thoughts on it being in the U.S.? What are your thoughts on it in general? Do you think it's good for the game? And uh, are you hyped about it? So first first off, thoughts of it being in the U.S. I mean, obviously, part of me is mildly frustrated it's not closer to home. You know, I'm going to have to pay tickets and stuff like that. But at the other end of the spectrum wherever you host it people are going to have to travel to get to it um i suppose you could make a case for because the uk has a bigger scene there's potentially more people that have to travel to it to be in america but to be honest i genuinely like i kind of feel like i'd like them to try and grow the game in america like and i think this might help do that i'm not sure if that's actually going to happen but i hope it does i will i guess we'll have to see um I'm looking forward to just traveling to America and seeing the place. I've, I've never been to the country before. I realize it's a very big place, so I'll only be seeing a very tiny sliver of it, but still, that would be cool. It'll be nice to see you both. I mean, I've seen a man before, but we didn't have much chance to uh, chat in person. Or um, drink. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that'll be good. Um, yes, overall, I'm actually mildly happy. I mean, it's going it's to hurt paying for flights and accommodation, but, you know, I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to go. But yeah, do you I'm- think it? to see it like all over the world like next year or like in 2021 what if it's in the uk or spain or in germany like do you think that that would be a cool event because like if it was in the uk like all of our uk or us grand clash winners and people who qualify through other means would have to pay for flights too you know so you're right people are gonna have to travel but i think it's kind of cool that there's like a sort of prestige with it that it's in a different location if it is i'm not sure if it will be uh but every year wouldn't that be cool yeah, no, I actually, I like that. I think it'd be nice if it travelled. And I think you've picked probably the two other most likely targets, the UK and Spain. Spain have apparently had a ridiculously big tournament recently that I've heard very little about, but I heard it had something like 100 players or something. Yeah, I think so. I think they got to about 100. So that's pretty pretty cool that they were able to get that many. Mm. So I'd, uh, I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to kind of, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy for it to be there as well. Maybe... I know there's a few dedicated players in Australia, even though their scene isn't quite as big. Um, maybe it'd help get their scene going if we hosted it there. Although I suppose if their scene's not very big, it's a bit of a trek for everyone to get to Australia. It is quite down under. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, that would be that would be a lot. But I, personally, I think that um, like I, I understand that it'll be difficult for a lot of UK players to make it to Nova, but I think that Games Workshop probably recognizes the quality of. Uh, an event that Nova is. Um, 
I mean, it was my first year last time and I thought it was great. Like, and I would recommend anybody travel to it. So I imagine that's a big part of why they chose it. Um, and then on the flip side of that, if they have the next one, say at Warhammer world, which I think would make a lot of sense. Um, I would be excited as a U.S. player to, you know, finally make the trip there, you know, if I was able to qualify for it, however we do qualify for it, um, which I really hope they'll give us more information on soon. Um, so right now, I believe the only official like way we know to qualify is to have won a Grand Clash. And they mm. they said in their announcement, I had a look at it again recently, they said, you know, current and previous Grand Clash winners, which seems to imply it doesn't seem to matter when you win the Grand Clash. So, like, even Shadespire people, you know, with trophies from then should still be able to make it to Nova. Yeah. Yeah, I do wonder, though, for the, the next one, I would imagine that you'd have to have won something since the previous one. That would make sense to me, yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting other, to see how it evolves. The other question, like, so there's so many questions, like, because <laughs> this isn't official, but we've seen, and like, so this isn't official, but it's fact that store kits give you a code uh, where you can get a chance to get entry to Nova if you win. Uh, so that's going to be one route to get through, isn't there? Right. I really, I really hope we hear more about that soon. Exactly, because like uh, a lot of the comments surrounding it. Uh, due to the lack of clarity, is like, well, can people just farm events? Like, and is that good for the game? Is that good for your meta? Yeah, because if I say, for instance, I'd gone to that last Grand Clash and I'd come second, I'd lost in the final. I would now be. It's obviously I don't want to go hard on this. We don't know information. They might have already thought of this, but I would be incentivized to go to every single small local tournament I could possibly go and stomp people into the ground to get as many of these codes and have as many chances as I can to hit hit Nova. Yeah, and not only to go to as many events as you can, but almost like selectively choose ones with new players um, and things like that. So uh, it's definitely concerning if that's what it is, but we really don't have the information. So. On the other hand, I will say I do like that they're trying to make these store kits worth it for it gives more value to the stores that are hosting them you know if you if you go to one of these events it could genuinely be your ticket to this massive tournament in america that's kind of cool it's just they have to be careful how they do it maybe have it so like you only are allowed to use one code each or something like that you know that'd be a solution yeah yeah it would and i I would think that they would have thought about that because my understanding is that other game systems have made similar mistakes in the past and had to rectify it i think magic did something like that before and then ended up changing their system so hopefully they're <laughs> they've done some research but so another question i have is say for instance you have won a grand clash in the past um and you can't make it to nova and there's going to be players in the uk or other parts of the world who that's just a reality for it's not because necessarily they don't want to go but it might be because they they can't afford the trip or maybe it's just even play there might be some in america who, you know it's a week they can't get off on holiday um are you allowed to trade your entry to someone else that's an interesting question probably not mm. i think maybe if you got like a lotto ticket type of entry yeah um then maybe i doubt that as well i think if you can't go, uh, the only reason you're going is because you're at that level where you want an event. <laughs> just trading that to someone who hasn't uh, isn't doing justice to the, I guess, the achievement that you made to earn that ticket. Mm. And it would probably mean that another lotto ticket would go through or something like that. Mm. Those are just my, that's my opinion on it at least. Yeah. 
Uh, one of the reasons I'm asking is because, um, so in Sheffield, we have a player, Martin, who won a Grand Clash back in Shadespire. Only person to have ever won a Grand Clash with Chosen Axes. Um, and it's looking like, so we already, obviously we know where Nova is. It's looking like it's a week that he's not going to be allowed to book off on holiday. Um, which just kind of sucks for him. Yeah. But yeah, it might just be, yeah. And it's, it's one of those that I, I completely agree with what you said, man. I don't think it is good to trade them. There's all these types of abuses that can come out of it. Just, yeah, it just sucks. Yeah, I guess my hope would be that, you know, as we move forward in this game, if, you know, their interest is making it, you know, actually competitive and doing this kind of, you know, masters and things like that, then I guess my hope would be that, you know, maybe at some point they'll do something similar to Magic where, you know, players have numbers and maybe they'll do qualifying heats and, you know, that kind of stuff and make it a little bit more clear, you know, how the rules even work. Mm. But, you know, this is only the third year of the game. So, you know, I expect it to. As someone who's been a fan of like, so I, I'm sure you guys know, because you've heard me randomly just shouting about it every so often. I'm a big fan of uh, <laughs> competitive League of Legends. And right yeah. now, that is the most like ridiculously organized on point. Like, you know, teams will pay a million pounds for a million dollars, sorry, for a franchise spot and the sponsors and all this stuff. In like, mm. I think the second big tournament they had, so in the second year of it, um, they had this, uh, they had a game at their big international tournament, uh, which lasted three days because it kept breaking, um, and they had to kick people out the stadium after seven hours of trying to get it to happen. Uh, <laughs> CLG EU versus World Elite, and they just had to keep remake, and it was the most ridiculously controversial thing ever because the first remake, one of the teams had obviously won, but they hadn't technically won. And the rules that they had at the time were like, if a game disconnects, we just remake it. And the other team ended up winning it. So I'm aware, like, this can just <laughs> no. happen. Like, in the teething stages of a game, stuff can just go wrong. The important thing is just if they're improving it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it'd be exciting to see how it moves forward. Absolutely. I would love to see, like, a regional shift, like, you know, maybe per, like, region of the UK or the US or whatever country. Maybe, like, the top four players can advance. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of Hearthstone, and Hearthstone does something similar, where they'll have like certain heats or certain events, like a winter championship or a spring or a summer championship, and the top four players get like qualified to Worlds. So mm. this is similar than, you know, maybe aside from Grand Clashes, if there's like, you know, last chance to qualify, win a regional event, that would be cool too. Mm. Um, I've got a question for you guys actually. Do you think they'll do a feeder tournament for Nova? So, say, for instance, they have the official kind of you get entry, you know, if you're a Grand Clash winner or you've got one of these codes tournaments on, like, the last two days. But for the maybe two days before that, they have a separate, you can come, this is your last chance to get into that tournament Nova thing. That would be my hope, is that um, I assume there's going to be a normal Grand Clash at Nova as well. Mm. Um, and maybe, like, skirmishes or something. Um, I, I really don't know. But my, I think... Like the ideal setup for me would be have a grand clash for anyone that did not qualify and have the top two or one or you know what have have a certain percentage of them, uh, especially the winner, um, be allowed into the masters the next day. Yeah, that would be really really cool. I think that would be really exciting for everybody. Yeah, because that's the way you do grow the local scene, right? Yeah, the scene that you're hosting yeah. it. In. I mean, to be honest, I I I know this kind of technically goes against like my you know awesome position of i've got in but honestly i'd be happy if it was more <laughs> than just the person who won like if that's just that feeder tournament it's like we've got eight spots left the top eight players on this going i think that would be really cool yeah it'd be like a last chance to qualify kind of thing yeah mm. 
be really cool. Obviously, I really hope they stipulate that people who already have entry can't go in and just try and block everyone else. <laughs> well, I think it. Uh, I mean, that is an interesting point because, like, in theory, like if you win the next grand class, you just took a spot from somebody else. Mm, so that's actually something I'm genuinely concerned about. Like, um, I, I suppose it's just we need more details. But like, there's a there's a big giant clash in January, and I want to go because I enjoy playing this game and I want to play it competitively. But am I just going to be obviously? Yeah, odds are I don't win, but I'm playing to win. Like, right. am I potentially just denying someone else like this place? Yeah, I mean, I know that I know that other Grand Clash winners have talked about that before. Like, you know, maybe I don't want to travel to another area and then attempt to win because I'll just be taking a spot away from somebody else. Mm. If that's how it works. So, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting the situations they have to navigate as uh, it moves forward. I think if you want to play the game and you want to you enjoy playing it competitively, then just play it. If you happen to win more than one, then it is what it is, right? I think um, the whole point of the game is to play it at a competitive and respectful level. And uh, you don't ever want to get to a point where you're maybe purposely playing worse just so that another person gets a shot. I mean, at the end of the day, you're here to play a game and your, your motive is to win. Like when we talked about it at the Dallas Grand Clash, uh, Jonathan, you said, my goal is to win, and even though I want you to win, if we play each other, I'm going to do my best to beat you. And I think that's the mentality everyone should have. Is yeah. You should do your best to beat the other person, and if you happen to win more than one Grand Clash, then maybe it just further solidifies why you deserve to be there in the first place. Yeah, I agree, and it it's also just probably kind of cool to be that uh, kind of like the like a boss at the end where <laughs> you're, you're like, they have to beat you to, you know, to get through it. But uh, I, I don't know. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, it'd just be interesting to see how they would handle that situation if it did happen uh, a few times. But I mean, honestly, the chances are pretty low that uh, too many people win multiple events like that. So, yeah. I mean, the I most right now is three uh, with John Reese and um, you know, he's been to, I don't know, like eight or something. I think oh. Jay's got two as well. Yeah. And then yeah. Dean Bills from the US has two. Nice. I don't know if they have two. So. Yeah, if you count the team tournament, yeah. They do, apparently. Yeah, it's a yeah I, I think they should. I think they should, yeah. It's uh, it's really cool. But uh, enough about the Masters. I guess we're waiting for more details there. <laughs> um, I do want to give two shout-outs to two listener questions um, that we kind of answered. Uh, through the natural conversations. But Jared Johnson from the Battle Mallet, he asked about the mirror match, so we went into that quite in depth. And then Max Bernstein, back, <laughs> Max Bernstein from the Battle for Salvation podcast asked uh, what would happen if you didn't get the three objectives, which I feel like we covered as well. Mm. Um, so lastly, are there any kind of uh, comments or, or questions or uh, topics you'd like to bring up before we close out the episode? Uh, so I'm hyped. Um, so from the spoils we've got, I say spoils, from like leaks we've got, it looks like Snarlfangs are coming out this month. And I say this month, we're just in November, aren't we? Yes. And it looks like we're also getting the Dreadfane Warbands as like official separate releases, which I think means we'll be getting neutral cards for them. Um, like there's a whole bunch of reasons that point towards that. So that would mm-hmm. be three expansions worth of neutral cards um, if, the, or if all that is correct, which is 
well, we're playing a new game again. Uh, so I'm really hyped and I'm really excited to see what happens with the game, especially with the Hunter stuff, but also with all the other keywords like quarry, poison and lost pages. I think, uh, I think it's going to be an interesting time. And the gift pack too. That's oh, yeah. That's been announced as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think what was on the leak was the Snarl Fangs, the Dreadfane box, and then um, something called the Gift Set, um, which may be the Universals from, if there are Dreadfane Universals, but I don't know. if We just don't know. Um, I do have a question for you, Mike. Uh, given the way the meta is now, um, what sort of things do you hope from the new Universals and maybe the Snarl Fangs? Um, like, or I guess I'm just wondering what, what are you looking forward to or what would you like to see in the, you know, that's coming out this month. I just want to see more interesting kind of weird build around me shenanigans. So that's why I kind of like Mm -hmm. poison and lost pages. I love keywords like that. And I love building around crazy stuff like that. Um, I also, this is going to sound crazy for me, but I'd like some just good pure aggro objectives. Um, I think like right now, weirdly, the best aggro objective in the game is path to victory. And it's not really, it's a flex objective. Um, I think maybe you can punish Grimwatch and stuff like that if you have kind of, I don't know, an equivalent of an advancing strike or something like that. So I'd like I'd like to see some cards like that. Cool. Yeah, I think that's I think that would be helpful. Because um, right now we pretty much have strong start. <laughs> mm. And uh, yeah, basically the other one you mentioned. So cool, cool. I think that's uh, that was my last question. Uh, anything you want, else you want to add, Amon? Uh, no, uh, that's really it. Um, I, I'm looking forward to that meta as well and hoping things change and there's some really cool ways to play. I'm really interested to see how the Snallfangs perform. Uh, I think there's a lot of hype around those models, so that's pretty exciting there. Uh, but overall, just thank you so much for uh, joining our episode, Michael. Um, you know, we all get along great, and we always enjoy talking to you and you know having you as a guest here i think the content was awesome today oh it's yeah been a pleasure being on yeah i think you're the uh first person to be on it twice so <laughs> it's uh, good to have you back uh, this is the first podcast i've been on where everyone's going to nova yeah it's oh true. that's right boom yeah. boom well one uh, grand clash so exciting all right, everyone, that is it for this episode. If you have any feedback, questions, or comments, please let us know on Facebook at Path to Glory Podcast. You can follow us on Podbean, and that's where we'll be putting the show notes as well. Um, you can also rate us on iTunes, and we just want to thank you for listening, and we wish you the best of luck on your Path to Glory. That's where you say nice, Michael. Nice. <laughs> <Very good. laughs>